My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. I'm Renan Ashkenazi from Grow Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on winning the deal, the before and the after. Let's hear from my guest today. Hi, everyone. Super excited to be here today with one of my all-time favorite investors, Julie uh, Julie is an, uh, a general partner at Andreessen Horvitz, where she leads investments in healthcare technology. Before Andreessen, Julie was the co-founder and chief product officer at Kairos, a market leader in patient access, and before that, held various product positions. She studied computer science, pre-med, uh, is an undergrad at MIT, has a master's in genomics from Harvard MIT, and an MBA from MIT Sloan, and that's just really the first few lines of her resume. Uh, just an important note uh, I'd like to make is that A16 investments may be discussed in this conversation, but none of the following content should be taken as investment advice. Hey, Julie. Hi, Renata. Great to be here. <laughs> so great to have you with me today, and welcome to the Kaufman Podcast. I could talk to you all day, but we only have 30 minutes, so I wanted us to focus on conviction. When I imagine the best place to be in when making a, a decision, an investment decision, it's with with deep belief, one that you could stick with and defend one that you feel in your stomach. And we always say that venture is both a head and a heart or a gut kind of investment. And, and I, I, I wanted to, to ask you if, if you have any sort of framework for, for how to reach that conviction. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, you mentioned my background as a product person. I think this is one of the places where the benefit of being a product person and frankly, being a founder, um, I think really manifests, you know, because product people tend to be very comfortable making key decisions very quickly based on limited information. So <laughs> that motion in general is something that I've been very comfortable with for basically my entire career. Now, the difference when you're doing investing versus being a product person, for the most part, is that investment decisions are generally irreversible, right? So when you're, mm -hmm. when you make a decision to invest in a company, you are basically signing up for, you know, you have to be mentally prepared to sign up for a 15 to 20 year ride potentially. And um, therefore, you know, the nature of how you go about making that decision, I do need think needs to be tweaked relative to how you might make a product decision, which, um, you know, for the most part is reversible in the sense that you might ship something, it could totally fall flat on its face, but you can always, you know, revert your code or, you know, go in a different direction. So, you know, that that's kind of uh, one of the, the the balances that I've had to kind of learn how to do. A big part of how I've gone about doing that um, in, in terms of frameworks is really, you know, a couple of things. One is just, I think, great decisions and getting to conviction is highly predicated on having a prepared mind. So, you know, I do, I know there's many schools of thought around, are you thesis driven? Are you more opportunistic? Um, you know, do you index more on the founder versus the market, um, et cetera? Like, I believe, I believe strongly in having... A very strong point of view on you know markets in particular, 
Um, I believe in writing them down. You know, we obviously are big content producers here at the firm, but even internally, I have my own sort of journal for, you know, thinking about spaces and just, you know, articulating what I believe is possible or not in those spaces, what spaces are conducive to supporting massive companies being built. And um, what, what that helps with is, you know, when you go into these meetings with founders where the process is moving super quickly, you know, you, you just have a backdrop, um, you know, a chassis onto which you can then react to what you're hearing from this individual company. And then also just be open to being wrong. And, and you know, you yeah. have in your mind the seven pillars of your belief. And if you're, you know, um, right on four of them, but you, you're proven wrong on three of them, you know, you still have some legs to stand on, um, again, to make that, that decision in, in a, a relatively efficient fashion. So I think the whole um, notion of being prepared and um, doing, you know, upfront work uh, in your downtime to understand markets, understand the laws of physics, right, in healthcare in particular, because I focus on healthcare investing, it is, I think, um, incredibly important to you know, actually literally understand what's possible, like legally and regulatory wise, you know, versus versus not. So that that's a big part of, of how I make that decision um, or how I make those decisions and get to conviction. Yeah, you see, that all made perfect sense until you said downtime, which I don't believe at all. <laughs> Having been a founder, I know what I, I don't I, and like innately don't sleep that much. So um, <laughs> I, I, I find the late hours of the day are the most productive for me along these lines. Yeah, it's you know I've been talking to uh, to a few investors about about conviction and the the notion of prepared mind comes comes up a lot. I've heard people call it pre diligence, and and there's almost nothing that can compare to that, right? Nothing that can compete with with coming not only for your speed the, to conviction, but also how you come across to the uh, to the entrepreneur. Exactly. I was just going to say that. I think it can be a huge selling function, right? I mean, there's nothing like a founder being able to pitch their vision. And yeah. get a response that actually denotes an understanding of that vision, right? Um, right. And so I think that that's um, it, it's both a sales tool, you know, in addition to being a decision-making tool. The other thing I'll mention, um, just because we're talking about sort of, you know, th th these days, as we all know in the venture world, like the timeline under which you have to make a decision <laughs> about a given deal has shrunk tremendously, and you know, that's where I, I, I certainly from a healthcare lens, and I think we as a team here. Um, very much believe in like really doing the work and like you got to you got to do diligence you got to do reference calls you got to you know uh, run the cycles it's frankly sometimes a turn off if a founder says you know I only want to meet you once and you have to make your decision now you know we we don't <laughs> think it's it's doing anyone justice to to you know run a process that way but um, the one thing that I, I think very carefully about is kind of conviction that the derivative function of my level of conviction over the course of time that we're doing diligence. Because that tends, I would say in retrospect, there's like 100% correlation between the, the slope of that function and the deals that I do versus not. Yeah. And so I, I'm very careful to like literally wake up every day and we have a numeric scale on which we measure this. If that if that number is not trending upwards, not even staying flat, like it has to be trending upwards during the course of doing the work, you know, that that's a signal to me that it's, it's likely that I'm not going to get there. That is super interesting. You actually, you're saying you have an numeric scale that you scale every day when working on a deal to make sure that yeah, you're just in terms of your, your your level of conviction. It's totally, it's, it's in some ways, ironically qualitative, you know, in terms of tying your conviction level to a number, you know, it's also predicated going back to the prepared mind framework. It's like, yeah. we, we're very precise about what is the one key question mm -hmm. that I'm going to focus on in the next 24 hours that I think has the most likelihood of changing my mind either way, right? And so we can be very targeted about 
the, the nature of the work. We just want to be efficient, obviously, with our time and not do like every possible type of diligence under the sun, but really like really focus on the thing that we think is going to move the needle. So in that sense, you should, if you're doing that right, you know, with every cart that you turn over, um, you should be trending either up or down, you know, relative to where you were 24 hours before. So we do um, literally talk about that when we do our internal huddles and stuff after, you know, doing a bunch of work, you know, kind of is that score going up or down? I absolutely love that. But, but you know, you're touching on something that I was going to, to, to ask you about later. The speed has changed, right? I mean, this rapid fire deal making means that you need to handle diligence in a world where the most attractive deals can open and close in, in, in days. And so something has to change in the process, right? And, and, and I understand that you're saying, I don't want to, I still want to reach that same level of conviction, but is there anything in the process that, that has changed for you in, in this past year? Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're probably much more proactive about having that conversation upfront, right? Cause you generally have a sense after that first meeting as to whether you want to lean in or not. Yeah. And if you are feeling like you want to lean in, um, you know, we're always very clear. We always like literally, you know, spend five minutes at the end of the conversation. First of all, you know, just sharing more about the firm because the founders always have questions about the firm and, and us as partners, but also just talking through our process to, you know, say like, hey, listen, if, if you're looking to, to have us make a decision in the next 24 hours, just a heads up, it's highly unlikely that we're going to get there on the basis of knowing, you know, the types of, of things that we need to, to un, uh, upturn, especially, I would say, like, especially in, like, the nature of a lot of healthcare companies um, have some sort of enterprise motion to them. And, you know, to get seven payers on the phone and, you know, do kind of market diligence, you just, you just mm -hmm. need time to do that. So I think a big part of it is just setting expectations up front in the process of what that process is. And just mutually having that, you know, dialogue about um, what are your expectations, what are mine, let's meet in the middle and, you know, figure out what works type of thing. And then, you know, the other part that I mentioned earlier about just being very, very precise and efficient about what specific types of diligence you're doing on a day by day basis. I think that's also extremely helpful for both sides, because, again, we try to be transparent to the founders about what our key questions are. And, um, you know, they can then focus on, like, just help us answer this one thing right now versus yeah. sending them a list of 40, 40 questions and having them have to, you know, run around collecting data and, and putting together a very ambitious data room or such. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, where do you stand in the gut versus head <laughs> debate when it comes to conviction? Yeah, I mean, I think there it's kind of a loop, right? So yeah. I feel like gut forms after you've applied your head, you know, to doing the learning and doing the work and seeing, mm -hmm. you know, pattern rec and all that kind of stuff. So I am a believer that gut can absolutely be important, you know, if you are in, in parallel to that, doing the process and doing the work of, of um, the prepared mind piece that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. the, the flip side of that, and I say this actually with my founder hat on, is that gut can also be very much informed by, you know, the bias of your own personal experiences and your scar tissue from your prior um, experiences of trying to build something that's really, mm -hmm. really hard. And, you know, saying, God, that is a really, really hard go to market or that is a really, really hard kind of product to build. And, you know, again, being like overly influenced by um, by your personal journey. So I think that's actually one thing that I'm very mindful of, especially in healthcare, because the conditions, you know, part of what makes me so optimistic about investing in healthcare right now is that the conditions have fundamentally changed. Right. Like mm -hmm. the market conditions are like 10x more conducive now than they were 10 years ago when I started my company. Still super hard relative to other spaces. But you know, that's where I need to be. I need to check myself in terms of the gut reaction of, oh, that's hard. Actually, no, you know, 20 things have changed in the last 10 <laughs> years that 
perhaps make it not so hard or at least more tractable. Um, so, you know, that's something that I'm certainly very, and we in general, like we at the firm are, you know, generally all of ex-founder, um, you know, credo. And so it's something that we, we talk about and we're very mindful of. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just an interesting discussion. You know, I, I always say that I think that there's a gut to it, but the gut is fueled by the mind and I'm not yeah. always uh, winning that, <laughs> that argument. Um, but I'm also asking because, because it could be so individual and then, you know, and then there's a partnership and what happens when there's a deal that comes across your desk and you fall in love with it, but your partners vehemently hate it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's difficult to, conviction is something that's very hard to pass along. So, so what happens then? Yeah, I think there's a few inputs. So one is process, right? Like your firm process should be conducive to internal debate in a productive mm-hmm. fashion that anticipates the fact that you know, there are likely the majority of deals are likely to have that dynamic, I would argue, right? Because yeah. um, even within our, our bio and healthcare team, there's four of us, you know, each one of us is a very different center of gravity. I, you know, I think we all have very different tastes, frankly, on, you know, founders and deals and companies and such. And so I think that's a strength, right? Because at the end of the day, if we're all, you know, entirely consensus driven, then it's likely that we're probably just getting low hanging fruit deals and like things that might be easy um, to invest in versus, you know, things where we really push our thinking. So I think that like your internal firm process should anticipate the fact and actually lean into the fact that like there will likely be disagreement and debate for every single deal that you bring in and, you know, just make the room for that. So we do that in the form of like dedicated multiple, you know, every day, actually, we have dedicated time for deal debate. And so any any deal that anyone's working on, you have a forum that, you know, is standing on the calendar that you can bring that deal to and just hear, you know, kind of talk through all the, the different um, dimensions of why why you're excited and, and hear everyone's pushback to check yourself on your thinking and actually make the case for, you know, why you think they're wrong. Um, so I think the process part is, is a huge part of it. I think the, the second piece goes back to what we said earlier about, you know, the the prepared mind piece is also a team sport. And so again, like if you do if you do work on a market and you actually articulate and write down your theses, you should share that with your team. And so my team knows, you know, here are the 17 things that I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know theirs. And, you know, not only do we publish them externally, but we have a lot of work that we have um, internally that sort of reflects that. So it also has to be a team um, orientation, which, you know, I think when you think about like old school venture and, you know, much more of like a lone wolf type uh, game, I think that needs to fundamentally change in this day and age, given that there are just, you know, massive, you know, the number of great companies out there is just a multiple of what it was before. And so even more so you have to be, you know, sharing that intelligence internally. And then the third part is like, you just, you know, you as an individual GP have to just know that you will likely do, you know, again, multiple deals where you're not going to have a hundred percent agreement on Hmm. excitement about that company, you know, that's where you just have to have sort of, you have to trust yourself and know that, you know, you might go against the grain. Initially, there's so many examples retrospectively, of course, of companies that no one liked at the beginning, but ultimately Mm -hmm. became a winner. And then of course, you know, hindsight is 2020, but I think a big part of it's like the psyche of your own individual, you know, management of just, you know, saying like, Hey, I I need to be willing to do some deals where I know that there's not a hundred percent consensus around the table. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that we we like to stick to that notion that you know that the glaring reality is that the highest returning investments happen when when there isn't consensus, right? Contrarian. When, when yep. someone sees opportunity in markets that others aren't looking at or don't believe in, and yeah, and, but it's still not an it, it's not a I'd argue fun or easy. Maybe easy is the word place to be in. 
I want to go back to your yeah. founder's hat. <laughs> and and you were sure. a founder long before you were an investor. And I was wondering if you felt like that helped with conviction because you're more aware of the pitfalls. I remember I, I heard you once say um, that, that in healthcare, you could get fooled if you look at other industries as comparables, right? And, and that's an easy pitfall for a generalist investor, for, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, I think that's a, that's one example. I mean, I think probably the place where it reflects the most is in how you view founders and you know knowing how much grit and how much persistence and how much masochism you, you need to be able to play this game. It actually, I, I would say, has probably manifested in me spending more time wanting to get to know the founder and what motivates them and what are they signing up for? How ambitious are they? How big is their vision? How well can they articulate what this thing could be in yeah. 15 years? Like what's the biggest form of your company? That's probably the one key thing that I think having been uh, on the mat, so to speak, you know, you want to have, uh, you know, more conviction around than perhaps, you know, if you hadn't been in that game before. Um, I think it also, you know, the other kind of um, aspect of it, again, because I'm a product person, healthcare is also notoriously an industry where a lot of the winners, frankly, aren't the best products because, you know, so much of what actually helps people win is understanding how to negotiate with payers or how to get regulatory approval. You know, it's, it's sort of these existential um, things that are, you know, just force you to invest in muscles that are not the product, um, but are equally important to success for a business. And so, you know, that's another fundamental thing I, I think has changed is that, you know, number one, patients have far more agency, right. in what, how they make their choices about healthcare. Um, you know, even the payment flows uh, are putting a lot more burden on individuals um, to make direct, you know, kind of uh, decisions around this. So product does matter more. And I think that's where, um, again, my experience having built a product that had to go through the motion of compromising many things about what it was such that it could find a great, uh, you know, the right insertion point into the industry. You know, I think I probably place more rigor there than, you know, perhaps others who haven't necessarily built and you know, tried many, many times to launch and failed and then, you know, tried it again and then succeeded, um, but then had to, you know, figure out the next 10 steps to, to really scale the business. Like having gone through that, I think that's um, a big area of focus for me as well. It's interesting because on one hand, I would think that you would be a much more uh, approachable investor for founders. On the other, you would probably be a harsher judge. <laughs> Yes. And, and that, I mean, honestly, that's that when I go, when I said earlier, like I, you know, I, I focus a lot on evaluating founders, the way that people react to me pushing deep, like I, you know, we probably, and I would say this generally about our firm, right. Because we've all sort of been there, done that. Like we will tend to jump to the third level questions like really quickly. Right. <laughs> um, and the way that you know, founders respond to that is I think a big indicator of how they're going to do in front of a payer executive or a provider executive or, you know, um, when they when they're faced with competition and things like that. So I, I think it's a good thing. It's, a, it's part of the test <laughs> in terms of how they react to that. Yeah. I'm going to ask an annoying question because I've been asking it on all the on all the uh, episodes because I'm, I'm fascinated by how investors uh, uh, feel about or respond to it. That the flip side of conviction is or conviction investing is, is passing with conviction. Right. Mm hmm. And then there's FOMO. <laughs> and at the end of the day, every entrepreneur is our potential customer. And just because we choose not to work with 99% of the customers who come through our door doesn't mean that we don't agonize over it. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you deal with FOMO? How do you feel about that word? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely have my, I mean, I think everyone has their anti-portfolio list where, <laughs> you know, uh, 
six months later, you're like, damn, I should have done that one. But now in Israel, by the way, I have to tell you that this week with all the, uh, there are some crazy IPOs and my entire feed is full full of uh, investors. (laughs) Very unhappy about some decisions they made a couple of months ago. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, listen, I think like one thing that was, that was hard. That was like definitely one of the the ramps that I had to make coming in as a founder was, Mm -hmm. you know, you, when you're a founder and you're looking at these companies, you you like desperately want to find, like you want to see the way that it's going to work, right? You're so optimistic that you can figure it out and that Mm -hmm. there's an executable path for all these companies. So I think, um, you know, that, that piece of it was definitely something that, that I had to, you know, sort of learn how to manage. You know, that said, I think like the FOMO thing, the other thing I've learned is like, there are always more great companies and and that's what's wonderful about this job right it's like we have we have job security because like there will always be amazing entrepreneurs coming out of the woodwork always more you know markets to go after um and i think again like that has only accelerated in recent years uh and so you know there is a, a degree of like yes you may have missed out on one but like go find the next one and you know yeah. don't lick your wounds for too long i think you also just have to be patient um therefore right like you can't i think the notion of being too reactive to like deal heat, you know, as people call it, is, you know, also a sort of a red flag. You know, it goes back to everything that we just talked about, like having discipline on the process and all that kind of stuff uh, matters in those situations where if you're entirely driven by FOMO, then you're just going to make bad decisions, in my opinion. And then the last thing I'll say is like when you, you know, when you do pass, like the process of how you pass also matters to your point. Like we're a multi-stage firm. And so even though we pass on the seed, we definitely want to be able to be in a position yeah. to look at the A and the B and the C and the D for that matter, because we have mm-hmm. a growth fund as well. So, um, you know, doing it in such a way that, you know, still positions you as the type of firm and the type of partner that, you know, they the founders want to come back to, you know, and we measure this, like we literally do, we survey every entrepreneur that we meet with and, ask them whether they would want to do business with us, despite the fact that we've passed. Um, and we do quite well on that, on that front, but I think the, the, how you pass and, you know, with an eye towards the long game of the fact that, you know, you will have multiple shots on goal. If you have the privilege of being at a multi-stage fund, you know, also makes it a little bit easier to deal with, you know, even if you miss on the last one, you you'll have a shot on goal at the next one. Yeah. And I 100% agree with the point of how, how you pass. And, And I think that's something that I think most investors do pay attention to it or, or do understand the importance of it, but it's something that really I think we need to be very, very respectful when we approach. And I was I was going to ask you before, and then we uh, we, we we moved to a different topic, but I wanted to ask you about instincts and gut, and because I feel like investors are a very uh, insecure creature, <laughs> and we use our gut and we use our instincts, but then something happens, right? Something bad happens, or we get a bit of bad news, and all of a sudden, we don't trust our instincts anymore. Did you ever mm-hmm. feel like, and this is the time, and this is the, the the part where you're sharing some scar tissues. Did you ever mm-hmm. feel that your instincts betrayed you? This is where I think having been a founder can really be a benefit, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to, I've walked through the desert. <laughs> I've walked through <laughs> the desert for many, many years and had no feedback that was positive and had to really test myself on my belief in like what we were building. And, you know, I think that's where um, I've had less instances of that in this job um, just because I've seen the worst of it in some ways, because um, <laughs> it's obviously different when it's your own company and you have the, the full burden of, of the success of that company on your shoulders. So, you know, I think a, like I, but I, but I very much agree with and empathize with and sympathize with the the nature of your question, which is that like, this is a job where you are not going to know 
that you're a good investor for maybe 10 plus years, right? And so it's the second guessing that you do on a daily basis is highly unproductive, but also a real (laughs) thing, right? Because we all, we're all, you know, creatures of wanting feedback and wanting um, to know whether we're doing well. And that's, that's really, yeah, no. um, And so, I mean, I think um, I see this happening a lot, like uh, it's around deal heat, as I mentioned earlier. So I think people who might have not been leaning out on a deal, but all of a sudden they hear that XYZ firms are looking at it, you know, then they lean in. Like we see that this on the receiving side all the time where it's like, oh, Andreessen Horowitz is excited. <laughs> um, you know, let's let's make sure we didn't miss anything here. And so, you know, as a founder, I, I sort of feel like that signal is a really negative one where it's like if you don't have your own primary you know, thesis mm-hmm. on why you like or don't like this company, you'd almost rather have them pass than, you know, just be reactive to other people's um, instincts. I also see it um, in terms of, and by the way, on that point, I, I do, I do understand why deal heat is important. It's an important signal in that downstream financing risk obviously matters. Like when you're making one right. investment, you want to know that this company is going to be successful raising their next round. So I get that, but I think it should just be one of one of many variables versus like the primary driving variable, which I've I've seen it be for for some cases. Uh, I think um, it also manifests post-investment, right? Where it's funny because like when you're an outsider uh, at at a company and you hear, oh, you know, rumors that that company isn't doing well, right? Mm -hmm. Having been a founder, it's like, if you were to sample my company at any given point over a three-year period of time, you, it, the, the likelihood that you would have heard something along those lines of like, oh, we have this massive challenge. We don't know if we're going to make it. Or if you ask any one employee of the company, you know, how they feel, they're like, oh, my God, this, is a, a, this place is totally chaotic. It's a complete disaster. <laughs> right. So, so I just feel like that that kind of signals like every company goes through its through its ups and downs. And so being overly reactive to, um, you know, the nature of hearsay and rumors about how the company is doing it's like, just go again, go do the work and like get the story yourself and recognize that like every company is going to go through their ups and downs, perhaps like during some of those downs are when you can find the best deals, right? Yeah. Um, Cause they're not going to be overpriced. So I think those are probably two examples where I see that failure mode. But again, having been through the gauntlet, I, I feel like I've managed that relatively well myself. <laughs> it almost makes, makes me think that it makes sense to use that uh, conviction curve that you talked about earlier regularly, right? Even post-investment. Mm-hmm. I think that from our side as investors as well, right? Not only <laughs> managing the company, sampling every month where you feel about the deal that could mm-hmm. be that could be some interesting data to 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 analyze uh, and hindsight. Yeah, and it's, I always use I use like the deal memos for that purpose because you know we in our deal memo we'll always articulate like here are the strengths and then here are the things that we're not sure about, right? Yeah. And so if you if you look, go back to those six months later, yeah. um, I think it's super interesting to see, like, you know, how many of those, those things actually played out, how many of those yeah. were real risk versus not, and then, you know, kind of build on that. I literally just had a discussion today about a company where some things are not going as well. And one of the investors says, said, yeah, we were, we were really right about those things, but those are the things that you don't want to be right about. <laughs> I have something like something between 75 to 85 more questions to ask you, but we're almost out of time. So you have three questions that all uh, episodes end with, and I want your unfiltered thoughts. Just shoot. What makes a great VC investor? Attractiveness to founders. And then ultimately the performance of your portfolio, your ability to pick the winners, which I think are two things that are highly correlated with each other. I love that because at the end of the day, that's really what we're measured on. What advice do you have for our audience of VC investors and innovators? I think that it's interesting now being, you know, I've been two years in the seat as a VC. Like, I think that 
being on both sides of the table will make me a better entrepreneur the next time around. And I think like now that there's uh, such proliferation of opportunities to be angel investors, participate in, you know, some of these uh, new fund structures, et cetera, I, I, you know, I think it, there's so much merit to building empathy for the other side. You know, mm-hmm. VC versus founder used to be far more, you know, sort of um, decisive, or divisive than it, mm-hmm. than it is now. Uh, and I think a lot of that's because like more people are getting exposure to both sides of the table. How do you stay sharp? Any books, any podcasts, any blogs that inspire you other than, of course, your own uh, great one? <laughs> I actually hate listening to myself. So, um, <laughs> no, I think like just uh, my the way I stay sharp is like I just talk to like interesting people. And that, you know, we have the privilege of being in a job where it's like you're forced to talk to interesting people every single day, multiple yeah. times over. But one of the things I do love about like the Silicon Valley ethos is just the culture of open debate and open discourse about like, I mean, even if you are, are not at all anywhere close to being the world's expert on a topic, like people respect the fact that if you, you know, as long as you're being reasonable and, and respectful and are taking kind of a first principles approach to something, um, you know, people are willing to humor you and, you know, um, just have, have a discussion about some topic that you can go super deep on. So um, that's kind of one major thing. I also love reading. If I do read, if I do have time to read, I will read satire just because I feel like the risk in this kind of job is always to take yourself way too seriously. <laughs> and so I think uh, sometimes reading satire, um, you know, just gives you perspective on how ridiculous certain things can sometimes be. <laughs> how ridiculous everything can sometimes be. Great words to finish with. Julie, you are, <laughs> as you know, my personal rock star. Thank you. This was fun as always. We will definitely continue this discussion. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. This was fun. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows.